This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This week we are going to revisit a couple of recent chats. This year's One Read author, M.O. Walsh, talking about his book, The Big Door Prize. We are halfway through Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Month, so I thought we could take another listen to M.O. talking about his love for John Prime. And then in Act 2 of the show, we're going to revisit my chat with poet Dave Malone about his latest book of poetry called Tornado Drill. I spoke to Dave back in early July. And the reason I did not have time to make a brand new show this week is because last weekend I had the huge honour of being one of the awards judges for the massive St. Louis Art Fair. Having been on the organising side of art festivals for more than a decade, it was so fascinating and a real privilege to peek behind the scenes of one of the country's most high-profile festivals. The festival had received 840 artist applications and our job was to choose just 135 who would be invited to take part in the festival. It was an onerous task, to say the least, as every one of those 840 applications had merit, and it was like trying to choose between your favourite candy bars. It took us three rounds of voting over three long days to come to our final selection. And this past weekend, those artists came to St. Louis from every corner and edge of the country, as well as from Canada. And this time, our job was to talk to each artist individually and then give them a score. As well as the 135 artists we selected back in April, there were also all of last year's award winners who are automatically invited to be part of the following year's festival. All told, there were around 190 artists. So now our job was to look at the best of the best and try to decide who was the bestest of all. But we did it. One of the lovely treats that the judges get is the chance to each give our own award to an artist that has moved us. I started off with a long shortlist, but I realised there was one booth that I just kept going back to again and again to gaze transfixed at the artist's pastel works. For me, it was that same feeling you have when you fall in love with a song and you crave the sound of it, and so you play it over and over. His paintings made me feel the same way. I just kept circling back to stare at his deep cobalt blues countered by intensely sublime greens and the way he painted water so you could swear it was moving. So I gave my juror award to pastel artist Jeffrey Cannon from Austin, Texas. Anyway, that's why we're revisiting a couple of chats this week. And so, here we go. What would you do if you knew your life's potential? 
Are we living a less fulfilling life by not letting our imagination soar and reaching beyond our current life station to be the person we want to be in our dreams? This is the question that opens the novel The Big Door Prize by M. O. Walsh and which takes the fictional town of Deerfield, Louisiana by storm when a simple photo booth style machine turns up in the local supermarket and in exchange for $2 and a cheek swab claims to use the science of DNA to tell each visitor what their life potential is. Magician, cowboy, surfer, nuclear physicist or royalty. This is our entry point into the southern town of Deerfield, but as we get to know some of its citizens, the plot of M. O. Walsh's novel soon reveals a darker side to this seemingly benign curiosity and nefarious intentions and disturbing events come to light. As one reviewer wrote, it is a wise, wry, twisty and entertaining tale. And it is the multitude of stories and issues the book raises that got the Big Door Prize onto the Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read shortlist and was then voted into the top spot by the public. The Big Door Prize is Walsh's second novel. His first, My Sunshine Away, came out in 2015 and was a New York Times bestseller. The Big Door Prize takes its title from the John Prine song, In Spite of Ourselves, and came out in September 2020, just five months after the world lost John Prine to COVID. Walsh's admiration of Prine and his music is apparent all through the book, with most of the chapter titles referencing Prine song lyrics. The Big Door Prize was one of just six works shortlisted for the prestigious Thurber Prize for American Humor 2022 and has already been adapted by Schitt's Creek producer David West-Reed for a 10-episode half-hour Apple TV series that has already started filming. And as September is always one read month, it seemed fitting that for the first Speaking of the Arts show of the month, I should chat with our one read featured author, Milton O'Neill Walsh, who is joining me from his home near Lake Pontchartrain, Louisiana, where he not only writes novels, but is also an associate professor and director of the Creative Writing Workshop at the University of New Orleans. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, M.O. Well, thank you. Yeah, this is this is wonderful. I'm so excited about uh, the One Read program and getting to visit Columbia for the first time. I've never been there, so it's going to be awesome. I think you're coming on September the 27th, right? I believe that's correct. I think we have to start with John Prine and how the whole book is a beautiful homage to, as you write in the dedication, the still singing heart of John Prine. Now, this book must have already been at the publishers when he died in April 2020. And I'm sure it was a huge gut punch for you as a fan. But how did it feel as the author of a book on the verge of being published that is so full of his lyrics? Yeah, it was tough. You know, um, it was April 7th, I believe, it was the day before my birthday uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, when he passed away. And I can remember my wife is the one that told me the news and he's, his music is near and dear to both of us. And uh, I, you know, I have to admit, I had a little fantasy that this novel might allow me to meet him uh, at some point or at least correspond with him. And so I was very, uh, you know, selfishly <laughs> disappointed when I realized that wouldn't happen. But obviously in the larger scheme, just so sad that such a, such a remarkable presence in music and uh, such mm-hmm. an uplifting, I think, character was taken from us prematurely. 
It is a a curious and a lovely way to share your John Prime fandom with your readers. But take me back to how this idea got started. Yeah, well, it's one of the things I want to talk about when I when I come to Columbia is sort of how how John Prine's work came to inform this. And it, it was not at all part of the original plan. I don't know how many people have worked on novels or tried to you know do some sort of long project. But one thing that happens is new ideas come to you during the process, right? So I had been working on the novel for a, probably a couple of years, I would guess, at this point. And I had my scenario, I had my basic plot, I had all the things that that you want to have, my characters, right? But with, I think with a lot of novels, it takes a while before you sort of understand the purpose of your project and what it is, what it is you're trying to say and what tone you want it to be, right? I mean, there's a difference between just having characters walking around doing things and having a sort of glue to the way that it, that it, everything feels, right? And so I was, I was, uh, I remember I was just writing a scene, you know, one day and just kind of typing along, not thinking much about it. And I made like a little insider joke to a John Prine, <laughs> uh, a John Prine lyric that I just sort of chuckled about myself. And I was like, well, you know, I'm sure maybe one out of every 10 readers might get this, but it was really just for me. And then when I thought about it, I was like, well, that's it's curious that I did that. And then I started thinking about his music. And I'm like, why is it that I can't? really go a day in my life without thinking of a John Prime lyric, right? I mean, it's um, it's the type of thing where any situation that arises, it's like he has spoken about that situation at some point in his, in his catalog. <laughs> and so I was like, well, what, well, what is it? Why is he so present in my life? And then I started thinking about, you know, just sort of the tone of his songs and the way that he treats the characters that he writes about. I mean, he has obviously a wide variety of songs, uh, but many of them are based on characters, right? That he either created or, or people from his life or whatever. And, um, and he is so consistent, I think, in the way that he views people. And that's with respect, right? And with also a sort of like wink in his eye, right? I mean, he has this sort of humor that, that runs through his music. Whenever I try to, to describe John Prine's music, he's one of those people that, to me that when he wants to be serious about something, he looks it in the eye, right? And it'll break your heart. He's so earnest about it. But he also, I think, understands that humans are, are funny creatures, right? And we, we just, we get, in, we get ourselves into all sorts of trouble and, and we just sort of bounce around the world in a funny way. And so I started thinking, you know, I'm writing these characters that are getting themselves into these situations they probably never could have foreseen. They're acting outside of themselves. And it was important to me in writing this book that I'm not making fun of these people, although funny things might happen to them, right? And there's a big difference between that. I mean, mm. I think sometimes you'll read a novel, at least I'll read one, you know, and especially I'm, I'm interested in literature of the South, right? And so I can read some novels where I feel like they're depicting Southerners without much respect, right? I mean, they're sort of lampooning them because they talk different. That means, you know, <laughs> they're not too bright. Uh, and so it was important to me that I was writing a book that could be humorous, but that I also respected the characters and, and believed that they walk around on this earth. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, well, you know, that's what that's what he does, right? So, and maybe that's what I'm trying to do. And so I started going back and listening to a whole bunch of his songs, really his entire catalog, trying to find, uh, remind myself of those ones that gave me the feeling, the same feeling that I wanted to share with readers. And so once that happened, and I knew that my my ultimate goal would be like, 
to write a really long John Prine song, <laughs> <laughs> um, I embraced it. And so I went from, you know, having one little inside joke for me to next <laughs> thing I know, I was naming chapters after lyrics. And then after that, I went back and looked at the whole book differently. And so I started probably 30 of the chapters are now John Prine lyrics. The title I did not have, you know, the Big Door Prize was not the title at the outset. That came later once I realized how I wanted to not only honor him, but like I said, try to create that same sort of tone that he does. And I think his warmest and most humorous songs. So that was really how it became a marriage to me. It was kind of about tone and finding that sort of an invisible framework that a novel needs to have to hold it together. You have a, a handy guide to the chapter titles at the back of the book that explains where the prime lyrics come from. And I think you say there are 40 or thereabouts references buried in the text oh, as yeah. well as the lyrics. And so you left them there as a little gifts for true Prime fans to find. And you invited readers to send you a note if they find the others. And I'm curious whether you've been deluged with notes. <laughs> I have gotten some. Yeah. Um, it, and it's really been great because it's one of those things where you know, you don't realize, I mean, there's lots of people who I'm sure have no idea who John Prine is, right? And that, that's fine. Everybody has different musical taste, but you don't realize just how profoundly music can affect people, right? And so I, I did hear from lots of people who absolutely hold him in the same reverence that I do. And they, you know, they were picking some out that they had found sort of scattered throughout and having a good laugh about it. But almost all of them, which is really amazing about a lot of the feedback that you get from novels is that people will tell you such personal things about their lives and about like what his music meant to them and how this particular song that I referenced, you know, reminds them of like a late wife or things that are just truly personal and, and touching. Right. And so it, it was it was important to me that a person could read the novel and have no idea who John Prine is and not miss a beat. Right. That was very important. I didn't right. want to stake the whole claim on, on, a, uh, on an outside reference. Right. But I did want those who know him to have a little grin. What was the book originally called? Oh, gosh. Well, so the so the novel actually started as a short story about 15 years ago, a small piece I had published before I expanded it. And, and the title then was The Dream Toe, but it's T-O-W, right? Like the toe of our dreams, right? But when you say toe out loud, it sounds like something on your foot. <laughs> um, and, and so The Dream Toe was not quite what I was looking for. Um, so we, we had to we had to make a change there. Well, the Big Door Prize takes place in the few days leading up to Deerfield, Louisiana's Bicentennial Celebrations. It's a small town where everyone knows everyone. And recently, a machine has turned up in Johnson's grocery store, which is changing almost everyone's world. The DNA MIX machine that promises to reveal, with a quick swab with a Q-tip of some DNA from your cheek, what you are supposed to be in life. And it is, of course, one of those ideas that once it gets in your head, you start to wonder, A, am I really supposed to be making a, a community radio show about the arts every week? And B, <laughs> would I actually pay my $2 just for the crack of it? So give us a backstory on this idea. You know, it's funny because for a lot of stories and fiction that I write, I kind of have no idea where the initial premise comes from. You oftentimes you just sort of start with a character that you're interested in, right? And sort of voice, you know, that you're enjoying writing. But this one, I think comes from just my baseline assumption that 
almost everybody walking the earth could probably be really good at something they have never tried. Mm. And we just, we just don't know just because the odds, you know, I mean, the odds are just too great that there's something out there we haven't tried that we might really love just, and there's a lot of different reasons why we may have never come across it. And so I'm just always interested in the idea, like what could somebody do if they, if they just had no idea that they, they would be good at it. Right. And so I like the idea of, okay, well, what would happen if, a person was able to get this information in a, like a reliable way and, you know, different than somebody's grandmother saying, you know, I really think you would be good at ice <laughs> hockey, right? Uh, you know, different than that, you know, something that has some science behind it. And so that I think is where the idea of, of, of the machine came from. And I, I love, I love DNA, like the idea of it and the, you know, the idea that everyone seems to be pursuing their DNA and finding out who they are and where they're from. But like most people know so little about DNA, right? But we talk about it all the time as if we understand it. And so, and so you know, I was like, well, that's probably something that someone would buy. If you said, look, your DNA says this. You know, if a doctor said that to you, you'd be like, really? Oh, wow. My DNA says that, right? And so that blending those two things, right? So the idea of some sort of potential that you had no idea about backed up with a little bit, just a little bit of science. And so that's sort of where the machine came from. So you'd totally pay your $2 then, would you? You know, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> and honestly, you know, I've been asked that, what would you want yours to be? Because, you know, the machine gives people this little readout that just has basically like a one word, uh, right. <laughs> one word answer as to what their potential life station is. And it was so much fun to write. This is, Writing this novel was the most fun I've ever had writing in my life, period, without a doubt. I mean, I miss it all the time. I miss the characters. I miss, I miss the scenarios. It was just a real pleasure to work on, which is not always the case in, in fiction. <laughs> and I think part of it was just there were so many possibilities. I mean, I always refer to it as the dynamics machine, right? And so the dynamics machine to me is really like a story generating machine. So, I mean, if you think about the way fiction works, think about a short story or a novel, almost inevitably you're introduced to a character that is on one trajectory, something happens early on in the story that puts them on a different trajectory, right? That's basically how all fiction works. And that's what this machine does. Someone walks in there thinking their life is going one way and they walk out thinking they could go a different way. And so it almost felt like unlimited possibilities, which in a way was a problem. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's one of the great ironies of, of, of writing a novel is that a lot of what you have to do as a writer is find ways to limit the scope of it. I think a lot of people think about writing fiction as like opening doors and all, all this wild imagination. But really in a novel, you got to close a lot of doors or else the readers are interested in things you don't want them to be interested in or else you don't have a clear through line mm. of the story, you know, and what people are supposed to be engaged in. And so once I recognized that it could totally spiral out of control, if, if, I, if I wanted it to, if I wanted to introduce, you know, 70 characters, I had to start putting some guardrails up. And so that was really where decisions like basing it in a very small town came about. You know, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't put this thing in New York City and think I could handle that story. So I had to have a finite number of characters, a small geographical space, all these things so I could handle it. And so what ended up happening is I was obviously interested in all the wild readouts people could get. Then I also had to consider, well, what's the backside of this, right? So what, what about a person, like you're saying, who doesn't want to do it, right? What about that? And then ultimately the idea I was always the most interested in is what if someone walks in there 
and it tells them that they have already become the best version of themselves that they could. Right. Um, what do you do with that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think I think a lot of people might think, well, that'd be amazing, right? That'd be so wonderful. You found out that you've already accomplished it. I think the truth of the matter is that would be devastating to a lot of people. Why? Because we all want to feel like there's something else out there, right? That, that you know, if we would have just applied ourselves, we could have done this or we could have done that or, you know, we've made certain choices that maybe held us back from things. You know, we've sacrificed stuff. Like, I think that everybody wants to consider that there's some other version, better version of themselves out there. So what do you do if it says, nope, you've actually, you've actually done it. You've <laughs> right. actually done it. Congratulations. <laughs> but, you know, if a character is happy, and they find out that they're the best that they're supposed to be. There's reasons that they're happy, right? And it's because they're a good person. And it's because the, the, the people that surround them like who they are. And that's hugely important to me in terms of what I hope people get out of it. So there are a number of people we meet up close and personal in the book and whose stories we follow the most closely. There is high school history teacher Douglas Hubbard and his wife, Cherry Lynn. The parish's Catholic priest, Father Pete. High school student Jacob, whose twin brother was killed in a car accident a few months earlier. Trina, Pete's niece, and more importantly, the girlfriend of Jacob's deceased brother. And then the Bane of Douglas's existence, Juice Newman, who... Every time he turns up, I can't help but hear Jerry Seinfeld say, hello, Newman. (laughs) So talk to me about how much the book is driven by the plot versus shaped by its protagonist and whether over the four years of writing it, that kind of changed. You know, it's funny just hearing you do the summary. I'm like, wow, that sounds really complicated. Uh, (laughs) I'm like, what on earth was that writer thinking? Um, But to me, it was it's always about Douglas and Sherilyn, their marriage and their their relationship. That was always the heart of it. Like I said, 15 years before, when I first wrote a story about this, they were the couple. I'm just one of these people. I just I believe in love very much. I, in, I believe in good marriages and I'm interested in them. Right. And so the idea of what would people that are in love with one another and think that they're happy, what would they do if someone came and whispered in their ear like this machine does? Actually, you're meant for something totally different. Mm. You know, what choice do you make there, right? Do you do you leave your happy, uh, happy place, right? Or do you trust in who, in all the, you know, all the previous versions of yourself that brought you to this happy place? What, what do you do? And so that, that was always the heart of it. And now, you know, whenever I started expanding the story, it was too rich an idea not to have other characters. I didn't want it just to be the two of them. But as I started drafting, these particular characters arose. One of the first ones was Jacob, this high school kid. Why? I I, I wish I could tell you. I don't know. Something I just liked his character. I liked the voice. You know, I liked the way I felt when I was writing him. And his situation just became very interesting to me. And And that's when a lot of the sort of plot picks up because if you read the book, you'll understand there's some sort of, like you said earlier, nefarious stuff going on. There's troublesome things, right? And although I want the, I do want the book hopefully to be a uplifting and optimistic look at life. The, the truth of life is that it's not always that way. And it, it, it's not, to me, it's not a book just full of jokes and John Prime references. I mean, it's a book about pain and hardship and loss and all, you know all the things that make life so rich. And so once he came about, I recognize that the only way that this could work is for all of these characters to matter to one another and to be sort of intertwined. And so that's that's one of the real fun 
to me, projects of novel writing, you know, is finding ways to connect different threads and connect different lives. And so as I started writing it, yeah, I wanted, I wanted the plot of each character to, in surprising ways, affect the plot of others. And that's really how that came about. Some of the characters, you know, you just end up really caring for. Uh, I know that that sounds strange because they're just made up. You know, it's just a bunch of letters <laughs> on, a, on a computer. I, I get it. But you really do. You, you know, Father Pete, for example, is a character that I just, I just came to really like. You know, I, I liked thinking about him. Even when I wasn't writing, I liked imagining him. And so you have these characters that you care for. And then, you know, that's where I think the the hard work comes in is making the plot knit together, which is not always easy. <laughs> well, I would love to have you read a passage from the book. And there is a, a section early on in the book, I think it's beginning of chapter six, where Douglas Hubbard, high school teacher, is uh, is giving his thoughts on on how time passes differently for teachers. And I feel like I have a lot of friends who are teachers and they will really appreciate this, <laughs> <laughs> this passage. So (laughs) would you read for us the beginning of chapter six? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to. Thank you. And yeah, just for a little context. Yeah, this is this is Douglas sort of leaving work at the end of the school day in which he has discovered a sort of secret about his wife that he did not know and which he's had other unfortunate uh, occurrences happen during the day beyond teaching. And so this is just a little scene uh, of him leaving. By the time the three o'clock bell rang. Douglas Hubbard felt like a much older person than he'd been that morning. He was technically, of course, about eight hours older, but he had the sensation that years had gone by, decades maybe, and difficult ones. It was as if he'd gone to work that morning as jailhouse rock Elvis and emerged Las Vegas Elvis. He was not alone in this feeling. All across America at that very hour, teachers poked their heads from dank school buildings like ancient turtles from their shells. They shaded their eyes with notebooks and binders, jingled heavy sets of keys in their pockets, and looked, as a group, generally confused as to how the sun was still out, how the day could possibly be so long. This confusion made them drop their favorite travel mugs and neoprene water bottles in the parking lot, where they watched them roll beneath cars and realized they would have to get on their hands and knees in front of students to retrieve them, because these cups were some of the most expensive items they owned. Would this be the day's final indignity, they wondered? It was unlikely. Yet all they knew for sure, these teachers, was that their palms hurt on the asphalt, their backs were sore from standing, their voices hoarse from talking, and they felt well beyond their years. All of this, Douglas understood, was because teachers are well beyond their years. He had a theory to explain it. The phenomenon of high-speed aging, as particularly experienced by high school educators Douglas had long thought, was a simple byproduct of the space-time bend that occurs when otherwise reasonable adults are forced to navigate an adolescent's world. It wasn't merely the headaches teenagers caused that did it with their nuisances, their ignorance, their bodily horrors, but rather, like everything else ironic about teaching high school, it was a way a school day being cut into 50-minute blocks to keep it active for the students inevitably made it interminable for the faculty. Take Douglas's day, for example. Four sections of American history with two different preps, one freshman, one junior level, an honors world history class for seniors with college hopes, a noisy cafeteria lunch, and then a break, which is not really a break at all because you need to call your wife who suddenly thinks she'd be better off in Saudi Arabia. And then you have your picture taken by a romantic rival while your window is broken by a future Hall of Famer before prepping for three more sections of world history, civics, and Louisiana history, respectively, each of which you will try to teach while your students stare blankly at a custodian named Wilson, 
who was trying to fit a piece of plywood into the broken window frame without any discernible tools. All of this in the same building, often in the very same room, each scene beginning over again during the same stretch of day. It was, in many respects, like going to work on a loop. In fact, Douglas liked to think that if you tallied it all up and considered each individual class a person teaches as, as an entire workday into itself, which Douglas felt it was mentally, then a person who teaches high school ends up working for eight different days within the span from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. alone. This is not to mention the day they live before coming to work with their various family, children, and breakfast scenarios, nor the one they must face afterward with those same families and dinners and bills. Thusly, a mathematician might surmise that high school teachers actually live 10 entirely different days per each ordinary day, which means they live through 50 separate days in the five-day work week enjoyed by most human beings. Tack on the two normal days for the weekend, and the typical four-month semester actually adds up to around 800 days in fall and 800 in spring, or somewhere around two years of life per semester, which of course means that for each year a person teaches high school, they're actually doing about four complete years of living. It is therefore not unusual for a freshman, by the time she graduates, to witness her favorite teacher age 16 years to her four. And... If that teacher were to get roped into teaching summer school as well, then by Douglas's calculations, they might just turn to dust. <laughs> I had to kind of stifle my laughs all the way through that. I just think it's such a funny look at and true look at how it feels <laughs> yeah. to be a teacher. And as you are a teacher, I'm sure there's a degree of you in that <laughs> in that section too. <laughs> yes, yeah. I've, I have not I've not taught high school, right? So I've only I've only taught college, but I have to say, writing a teacher was a lot of fun uh, for me. You know, the classroom scenes are uh, were a great pleasure to write. I read somewhere that your first book took seven years to write versus the four years for this book, and that prior to your first book, you had started a couple of novels, but you got bored with them and abandoned them. So you put a lot of life into writing novels, and I'm curious what part of writing a novel takes the time for you. Is it the plot? Is it the people keep changing? Or is it just that you don't have time to do it? What And what makes a novel... What makes you want to stick with it rather than discarding it? Yeah, I mean, and if that doesn't sound sadistic enough, I had another book even before that, a book of short stories uh, right. that I spent several years on too, right? So several years for the stories, seven years for the first novel, four for this one. Um, you know, I think the ones that I ended up abandoning, it's basically because what you realize you have is a um, a scenario and not a story. And there's sort of a big difference, right? I mean, lots of times... You sit down, and you're like, oh, I got, I got this great idea. You know, um, you know, aliens are going to visit and they're going to, uh, you know, do this. And <laughs> it's going to be so wild and great. And everybody's going to love it. And you sit there and you write 50 pages like really quickly, just basically creating a lot of problems. Right. And then when you turn to page 51, you're like, OK, now who's going to deal with all these problems? <laughs> um, and if you don't have the interest beyond the scenario. Right. I mean, if you don't have the interest in the characters, then it, you're going to have a really hard time. So the the ones that I've managed to stick with, it's really the characters that drive me through it. I'll get to where if I'm really in on a novel, I'm sitting around thinking about these people as if they're like my relatives. I'm thinking about them as if they exist. And maybe that's delusional or whatever, but, but, the, but the good thing about it is that I get to a point where I feel guilty if I'm not helping them out. You know what I'm saying? Like I feel guilty if I'm not moving them forward, like if I'm not working on the on the book and they're they're sort of stuck uh in these situations, I start to feel guilty about it and it, and it brings me back to the page. Now, 
what takes so long is the the puzzling out of the plot, I think, is really hard because lots of times you don't know what's going to happen. And you can sit there and stare at a blank page all you want and nothing comes. Or you can you can start something and you can write, you know, 20 pages and then you realize that's a really terrible idea uh, that, that you just that you just wrote. It's not what you want. It's not in the spirit of the book. And so you have to cut that. And, you know, it's one of the weird things is that good ideas sort of don't exist until they just suddenly do. So you have to have the patience with yourself to not force it. And so that's part of what takes time. And then the other part is that I try to be pretty uh, ruthless with myself in terms of how I evaluate the sentence level. To me, sentences are are very important. One sentence uh, needs to be good enough to warrant a reader moving to the next sentence. You know, I don't don't particularly think about it uh, in terms of is this is this plot arc good enough to get the reader to the next thing? I think about it, was this sentence good enough to get them to the next thing, right? So I spent a lot of time editing my work, right? I mean, that was what was one of the things when you talk about the first novel taking me, you know, seven years. Well, I had only written short stories up to that, you know, up to that point. And so I was very used to being able to sit down, start on page one, you know, read through page 15 and have the whole thing and edit the whole thing over and over again. I was used to that. Well, I unfortunately took that same uh, tactic to the novel. And so I would sit down, you know, even when I was like 70 pages in, I would sit down on page one and start reading at page one and editing. And so five hours, five hours would go by and I'd get to page 70 and I'd type like one word and be exhausted. <laughs> I've gotten better at that now, right? I don't, I don't, I don't start on page one again every time. Um, but I'll, t- I'll tell you this though, like I'm working on the stuff I'm working on now, you know, I've got a hundred something pages in it and I, I, I sat down on page one the other day. <laughs> just, I guess I just like to torture myself. I don't know. We shouldn't expect that book before 2030 then really. No, yeah, yeah. It's going to take a while. That's uh, probably going to take a while. So you received, I believe, multiple bids from production companies to adapt the Big Door Prize for the screen. And you decided to go with David West Reed, who is the producer of Schitt's Creek, and it'll be on Apple TV. It's being filmed in Loganville, Georgia, and there'll be 10 half-hour episodes, which, if I'm reading the internet correctly, is going to feature the IT crowd's Chris O'Dowd, Gabrielle Dennis from A Black Lady Sketch Show, and David Gupton, who is in Black Lightning. I wonder how much is this TV production a separate animal from the book, and do you have any input on it? Yeah, it's a it's a totally separate animal, and I'm very glad for that. <laughs> I mean, one of the the great things about being in that situation where you can we can listen to people talk about visions they have for adapting your work, right? Is is to have options. Anyone, I think it's it's a dream. For someone to say, I love this book. I want to make a movie out of it or whatever. That, that's just a, that's a lifelong dream, right? And, and it's amazing. But I was very fortunate to hear a lot of different takes on it, you know? And, and David, he was the only one that had the idea for like a 30-minute comedy, like, like, like Schitt's Creek, right? And when I was talking to him, that, you know, that initial time, it was, it was as if someone was describing the absolute best version of my book back to me in a way that I hadn't heard before. Like all the, all the parts that he loved were secretly the parts that I really loved. And so from that point on, you have decisions about, okay, well, how involved do you want to be? All this type of stuff. And I know lots of writers who are are very hands-on anytime they've, they've had an adaptation, they want to write the script, they want to do all that. I, I am not that way. I mean, partly because I am 
I'm talking to David, who's one of the great TV writers of our generation, right? He knows like he knows what he's doing. And so I was, I was happy to say, you know what, I'm, I'll just be like a consultant. So I'm a, I'm a producer on the show and I consult and I'm just, I can't tell you how like thrilled I am with, with the version that has come out of this. You know, it keeps the heart of the story, but it, it does things that I never would have thought of. Do you know when it's coming out? We're hoping January or February of next year, but I don't know. I I know that the first, I know the first season has been shot. Perfect. Well, I mean, to those yes. of us far beyond the realms of ever having a book turned into a TV series. This is kind of a, you know, a, an inside baseball question. Is there, is it like a giant payday where you can suddenly start buying the top shelf bourbons and get season <laughs> tickets to the fancy box at LSU games? Or is it just like business as usual, not much changes? I mean, you don't have to give me any numbers, but is it, is it right. a, a significant change? <laughs> Yeah, well, any I mean, any anytime you get paid for writing, it feels very significant, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think that I think that the that the novelists, you know, anytime something's adapted, are probably the least paid out of the people, right? But yeah, no, it's it's not the type of thing where I've I mean, let's put it this way: I'm still working a full time job, right? <laughs> uh, I'm still I'm still teaching, so uh, that probably gives you uh, some idea. Well, let's end with your thoughts on a quote from one of the book's reviewers. This is from the American Library Association's booklist reviewer who wrote, It is hard to believe that Walsh wrote this moving novel long before the COVID-19 pandemic, for there is eerie prescience in its soulful message that gratitude and grace are not to be taken for granted and that life can be upended in an instant. Do you feel like you've written a book for the times? Yeah, it was really it was really strange the way those things happened and you know the way they sort of coincided and don't get me wrong if I could change anything it would be to take away the covid-19 pandemic and not have it rhyme with my book but I I do think it was weird that you know when it came out there was a time that a lot of people were having to sort of look themselves in the mirror and ask like why am I doing what I've been doing for so long right I mean when you took people out of their the the social you took the social aspect out of their work and they were just at home staring at a computer i think that a lot of people had that question like who am i like what am i doing like what else what else could i try and so i do think that that sort of that sort of rhymed with the message of the book like i said uh, I, I wish it wasn't that way because you know anyone that released a book in 2020 can tell you it was not a great year for books. And there were a lot of beautiful novels that came out that year. But uh, I do hope that a lot of those books from 2020 get sort of rediscovered. Well, Columbia, Missouri is certainly going to be discovering your book. M.O. Walsh's novel, The Big Door Prize, is this month's Daniel Boone Regional Library's One Read Book. And there's a whole series of events surrounding it, including a flash fiction writing contest, an art exhibit entitled Possibility Promise, book discussions, an exploration of second acts and starting over, and many other events. Plus... On Tuesday, the 27th of September, Emma Walsh will be here at Columbia College's Launa Auditorium for a discussion about his book. And that talk will also be streamed live right here on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. You can read all about the events that are coming up at oneread.dbrl.org forward slash events. And Emma Walsh, it has been such a treat getting to chance to chat with you. And thanks for your compelling books and for making time to chat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just I just got goosebumps when you were mentioning all the things that are happening uh, in town around the book. That's amazing. It um, is. Oh, that's that's so great. I'm just very I'm thankful. And I cannot wait to get there and, and meet everybody. It's uh, it's it's awesome. 
1100 years ago, in the year 905, the Japanese poet Kino Surayuki wrote that the poetry of Japan has its seeds in the human heart and mind, a nightingale singing among the blossoms, the voice of a pond-dwelling frog. Listening to these, what living being would not respond with his own poem? And that might be the perfect description for the collected poetry of my guest this evening, West Plains-based poet Dave Malone. Dave grew up in Roller, listening to Vincent Price's macabre tales in Radio Mystery Theatre, reading fantasy books like Dr. Doolittle and Madeleine Lengel's A Wrinkle in Time. But as an adult poet, Dave Malone invites us to explore the human heart and mind and consider the thoughts and emotions aroused by the natural world. He's the author of seven books of poetry which focus on love, landscapes and the little moments that linger as we sail along the bubbling brook of life. His most recent book, titled Tornado Drill and published by Kelsey Books, came out just a couple of months ago and about which one of the book's reviewers commented, Don't let the title fool you. This is no drill. There is real danger here. It's undercurrent felt in every precise image. It's power palpable. You cannot help but be pulled into this vortex, astonished by the beauty and possibility you will discover here. And that reviewer was spot on. Dave Malone, what a pleasure to have you on Speaking of the Arts. Hi, Diana. Thank you for that amazing introduction. Do you think you might have had a previous life in the Heian courts of Japan 1100 years ago? How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I I can really resonate with that simplistic lifestyle for sure and that appreciation for the human heart. Right, yes, a beautiful love poetry. That seems to be the line that goes through all of your works. Reading your poems in Tornado Drill, along with little snippets of poems from your other books, it is clear that you have a wonderful capacity to find words for feelings that just waft wordlessly around the rest of us. And I'm curious whether you are equally expressive in the moment when you need to speak about emotions or whether your eloquence is all on the page. You're going to ask me a very tough question, and I like it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, as I've gotten older, I have learned to become more eloquent in the present moment. But certainly, it, I think, is especially easy for us writers, um, for we writers, to speak about emotion from a distance and, and sometimes not get engaged in the moment. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is from William Wordsworth. And when he talks about poetry, he says that it is emotion recollected in tranquility. Mm. And I really like that because... That's a difference between what we may experience in the present moment and that which is the job of poetry. And I think the job of poetry is to, precisely what he says, is to be able to get at an emotion, but do so in a quiet manner and so that it can resonate more fully. I I suppose it's sort of like a musical composition. You know, it's going to take a while to, to work on that composition and layer it in such a way that it could really strike at uh, at a person's emotions. I find that having things written down is just so much easier that I'm 
more verklempt when it's in the moment, trying to think of things, <laughs> the right way to phrase things. Whereas on paper, it just, there's extra worlds of time available to you on paper. <laughs> <laughs> Almost indeed, most definitely. And I like how you, what did you just say, like uh, in your intro there, a bubbling brook. Yes, I mean, that eloquence can be right easier for us when we get to write it down for some of us. Right. So before the pandemic, you used to take your typewriter to art fairs and write poetry for tips. And I'm disappointed that you never came to art in the park here in Colombia while I was running the festival. But <laughs> I am curious about how that writing process worked and how satisfying it was working at speed while someone's looking over your shoulder and waiting for their poem before they go and get, you know, a candy floss or something. And then, sure. and then just letting it go i mean those poems that you write then they're just whoop, they're gone into space and time well sure i'm going to deflect a little bit and, te- and tell me more about art in the park is it gone forever will it return is <laughs> it, it will it's just happened the first weekend oh. in june so i hope oh you goodness. will come up here next year and and write poetry but how did that work people just stood there and and did you ask them questions how did that work Sure. You know, folks would come up and say, you know, they wanted a poem and sometimes they would have a specific experience that they wanted me to write about for them. And it really was a broad spectrum of things. I mean, the very difficult is the loss of a loved one that really is difficult to for me to have to try to, to, you know, I'm even uncomfortable talking about it, if you could tell, to try to get into the, the spirit of that thing to try to really feel compassion and feel through them what that must have felt like. Um, You know, easier poems are, I want one about this crappy job I've got, and I'm pretty angry, and I don't know how to express it. Can you help me? I'm like, sure. Been there. Had lots of crappy jobs. I think I can express that in in a few beats. I will also say, yeah, there's something beautiful about the process of writing a short poem giving it away, letting it go, letting it be the thing to them that's important and that they maybe post it on the refrigerator, put it in their journal or enjoy it for a day and it gets recycled. It's all good. (laughs) So nobody ever handed it back and said, I don't like this. Can you do it again? (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. We'll see next June how things pan out. So going back to Tornado Drill, reading through it, I wondered how much of the book was autobiographical because it felt like you were taking me on a journey through your childhood, your loves, the people you have known, the nature you find yourself in, the life that swirls around you. So tell me about the amount of artistic license versus life story in Tornado Drill. Oh, if I had such an interesting life as the book depicts... Oh, I'd say, you know, 50, 50, 40, 60. I I mean, I really think that, you know, as poets and writers, we work with what's in front of us, and then we take a lot of poetic license. So with regard to my book, you know, usually there's a moment that strikes me in recollection and or a line, a really great line, and so then I can access it, and then I try to build a narrative from there. And then usually by the end of the poem, try to really whip it around in some way or really move the reader to a realization or to a a feeling. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Okay. So Tornado Drill, the title poem of the book, mm-hmm. it feels like that was you when you were there in the classroom beneath the school desks, our legs angle and lean like autumn crickets. I mean, those were mm-hmm. your legs underneath the uh, school desk, were they not? 
Look at you. Yes, they were. <laughs> and, uh, I was in fourth grade, and uh, we were in Riley, Kansas at the time, my family. And so I remember going to elementary school there, and in that classroom, it was like attached to the cafeteria. And one afternoon, just this huge storm came up, and, and the windows turned brown. And we were there under our desks, and uh, it was pretty scary. Mm. And so I used that experience to weave details so that the reader can appreciate what it's like to be a child, to be scared, but also to be, not to give away the ending of the poem, but to perhaps be interested in adventure. Do you have an amazing memory or have you been a copious note taker your whole life? (laughs) Copious note taker. Yeah, I have scads of journals. I mean, I think that's that's so important. I, I would share with your listeners, especially for those who are beginning to write or closet writers, journaling is such an excellent way to have a writing practice. And so for me, I started journaling when I was in high school. And so taking notes over the years and Making observations is helpful to the process. And plus, you're in it. You know, if you're writing all the time, you're just down in it. And so that eventually you'll discover, oh, is there fuel here for poetry? Is there fuel here for fiction? Is there fuel here for playwriting, etc.? if that's your, your vibe? Well, I would love to have you read a couple of works from the book. And, and there were so many that I liked that it was very difficult just to choose a couple. But I did particularly like one called Close Call and one called We Don't Check Our Phones. So tell us a little bit about those works. And then I would love to have you read them for us. Sure. Close Call is a poem that's set in Paris. And basically, you have a protagonist who is unhappy in his current situation and starts to take a walk. So we'll leave it at that before we get to the poem. And We Don't Check Our Phones is just about a a drive into the countryside and seeing flowers and then wondering what is their genus and species and should we look it up on our phones? So before you read them, can I just ask you, are these in the autobiographical component of the book or are they in the artistic license part of the book? 50-50 again, loosely based (laughs) on an experience. And then I just make stuff up. Okay, all right, off you go. Close call. That afternoon in Paris, April hung down her head and spit. Umbrellas whipped about like ripped flags. My lover sulked in our flat with mac and cheese and graffitied the foggy windows with her pinky finger. I'd had enough of enough and trudged out for a single pint, a skunky German beer at a tiny bar, then just left, left, and a couple rights. It was on a side street I didn't know. My phone suggested the shortcut. The rain had stopped. It was just him and me. Well, what do you think? (laughs) I want to know who he was. Were you about to get beaten up? I mean, what was about to happen? I was on the edge of my seat. You get to choose. You get to decide. So, yeah, that one was very intriguing. Just that last line, it was just him and me. Someone you knew, someone you weren't expecting to see, somebody that was threatening, somebody that maybe you had an immediate feeling for. It was just Mm. there were all these possibilities. and, And I 
wanted to ask you what happened next, but I guess I'll never know. No, you won't. But I love that <laughs> idea that it's uh, someone surprising, like, oh, maybe that's someone I haven't seen in 20 years. Yeah. That's an interpretation of the poem I hadn't heard yet. Okay, there you go. Love it. Okay, we don't check our phones. Thank you. In April, my spouse and I drive the blacktop to a hiking trail where the woods don't wish to show us a map and grow vines flouting the best intentions of the county's caretaker. We zip 60 miles per hour away from the virus toward forgotten homesteads and paths of yellow flowers. She and I fight over the name. Is it jonquil or daffodil? Which is genus and which is species? We do nothing to confirm or not confirm. And the forest gives no answer. Now, I love that because one of my husband's favorite phrases is whenever a question comes up and somebody suggests, oh, you know, well, let's just check on Google. My husband says, let's not crush the wonder. Let's just sit and wonder because we have lost the ability to wonder. We have to have an answer immediately. What was that song called? What was that film called? Who was that person in that film? And sometimes it's just nice to wander for a while and let your brain do the work. <laughs> so that was what spoke to me in that poem. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to steal that. Can I just steal that straight away? Let's not crush the wonder. That's sure. a poem title. Tell your husband that is a or it's a song. It is. Right? He, he wanted to have a website called crushthewonder.com, but I, I feel it was already taken. <laughs> So you have a beautiful conciseness about your vocabulary, yet within that very crisp succinctness, you manage to contain volumes of imagery, which often appear as a single couplet. In Tornado Drill, I love where you write, dust motes float and sparkle above the tongues of our sneakers. And in 9.15 to Memphis, I just adore the lines, he grew a pair of teenage girls for a while, their hips hypnotized water sprinklers in the summer and in promises i was hypnotized by her red hair thick as bisque smelled of bourbon and smoke mm. during our hangover mornings while a breeze through the corn snuggled her window at dawn did these lines come to you with ease or are your poems works that are crafted over many hours or months sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. So some of the lines I got and some of the lines I worked over like you're, you're whisking a bisque. Mm. You have a lot of couplets. I guess you call them couplets. I'm not big mm -hmm. on my terminology. What is it that attracts you to that couplet format? Well, you know what's funny? When I first saw couplets in modern poetry, I'm like, oh, no, you can't <laughs> do that. You're not... You're not making them iambic, and they're just, no, you're cheating. And then in time, I started using them more and more, and I felt like you could get away with a free verse couplet. I, I like them because they're organizational, they're tight, they, they can capture two or three seconds in a certain way. You know, in a full stanza where you have 10 or 12 lines, they do their work, too, in a different way. It's more like those 10 or 12 lines are, I don't know, they're like weightlifters. <laughs> and they, I, I'm just coming off the cuff here thinking. And then the, 
the other lines are sprinters, maybe. They're very effective. And I think somehow maybe it speaks to our modern day brains that are increasingly unable to focus on long pieces of text because we're just used to this flickering of short messages and tweets and text messages. And and to be able to just look at two lines of text, somehow it's still within our brain's capacity. <laughs> when it gets longer, then it's like, oh my goodness, there's like 12 lines I have to read all at once. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you're calling it. That is so true. That is that is it. And so, I think I, I was just going to say, I naturally sort of, I think, fell into that. I'm like, well, well hell, I don't want to read 12 lines stacked up like that. I want two. Give me two. I watched your, talking of brevity, I watched your short movie called Tea, which people can find on your website at davemalone.net. And I've watched it a few times. It's only a minute long. And yet, like your poetry, it is both vast and concise. It's beautifully and movingly shot and written. Give me just a quick little background on this short film. Oh, certainly. And we have to start by talking about Isaac Protova and Ezra Fike. They're the young men who, who did the work, did the most of the work. They directed, produced. My involvement was at first with the, the script idea and then tweaking the script some and showing up on set and saying very little and letting them do their amazing work. So the three of us just came up with an idea. We, we wanted to submit to a one-minute film contest and said, threw around some ideas. I'm like, oh, this sounds like a good one. And so from that T, the little script emerged, and then we were able to use a really wonderful location in the town of West Plains in the old bank building. And uh, that served as a wonderful setting and, and, a, and a quick, quick short film. Did you win? We were one of the six winners, yes, but not the grand winner. Not the first prize, but they were awarded like six top prizes and we were one of those. It's great. I would definitely recommend if people just take a minute to watch it. It's very eerie and beautiful and sad and has it has all the emotions in it. Thank you so much. You can find poet Dave Malone at davemalone.net and from there you can also connect his books and watch his short film Tea. Plus you can also find him on Patreon as well. Dave, thank you so much for sharing a little of your writing with us today and for making time to chat. Well, I wanted to say thank you so much for an amazing interview. It was really wonderful. That is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingoftheartstransistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guest this evening, one read novelist, M.O. Walsh, and poet Dave Malone. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!